0: This is Real Estate Rookie episode 359er. My name is Ashley Kerr and I'm here with my co-host Tony J. Robinson.
1: And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie podcast where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And as always today, we have a great story for you. Today, you're going to hear from Jaron and how he went from, you know, grandma's couch making 15 bucks an hour to cash flowing over $30,000 in his first year investing in real estate.
0: We are going to understand the power of buying your first home and how it can unlock your investing journey. Jaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you kind of paint a picture for us and tell us a little bit about life before you bought your first property.
2: Uh, Yes, I can. Um, First thing I wanted to just kind of clarify or get out there is I want to say thank you. You know, um, I think sometimes when we do stuff like this, whether it's to grow our own brand or whatever, like our intentions are maybe a little different than actually what comes out of it. But four years ago, maybe five, I was kind of unpacking the timeline a little bit this morning. I was sleeping on my grandmother's couch, not by choice, and I can't say that I'm much of much, but literally because of listening to this podcast and you know buying the books, getting my hands dirty a little bit, I have some rental properties. You know, It's not that magic, and it really is the community and, and people like yourselves who do this that I mean, it's crazy just the life that's been given to me over the last few years. I'm not even going to cry, yeah. <laughs> but it's emotional. <laughs> Don't
0: worry. We'll make you cry by the end of the episode, Jerry. It's <laughs> emotional.
2: You know, it's real stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, that was very heartfelt. Thank you. Uh,
1: I just want to add, man, like like kudos to you for taking the action because across the Bigger Pockets community, the, the podcast, the the books, there are millions of people who consume the content that we put out through Bigger Pockets, but only a fraction of those people actually use what they're learning to take action, to, to, to implement, to, to do the things they need to do. And you're, you're a part of that group, man. So kudos to you. And now you get to inspire the next generation of real estate rookies to, to follow in your footsteps, man. So super excited to have you on the show today.
2: Yeah. So quick backstory, basically. Um, like I just mentioned, I would say four or five years ago, um, I was living on my grandmother's couch, sleeping on my grandmother's couch, not by choice. Um, I don't need to go too deep into this, but basically I was getting sober in that process. And, um, because, you know, I was in my mid to late twenties at that point, I was partying too much and I had no direction in my life. You know, that, that kind of pain created this fo- positive feedback loop. And I, I just didn't really know where to go with life. So started to get that foundation together. Um, started to move forward and, y- you know, I, This is all going to kind of tie into my job at the bike shop because it's been five years now which is amazing and uh i just needed a job where i could like go to work leave work at work and focus on myself outside of work you know i say that like i'm a recovering restaurant industry professional you know like it it just my time was up in that career and i needed to make a change and it needed to be simple i've always been a bike rider so the bike shop felt like a good fit was living on grandma's couch. I didn't need a ton of cash. So $15 an hour, AKA, or, you know, better known as minimum wage back then, uh, was fine. You know, I didn't really care. And, um, I had been doing that really happy. You know, some of the best years of my life, those first two years at the bike shop, I was riding my bike all the time. I was focusing on myself. You know, I was learning about different things where I wanted to go. And I didn't think about money once for those one or two years you know it just was like something that came in my bank account and then i would use it to buy a candy bar and a bike ride that was it i wasn't thinking about financial education or setting myself up for the future i was just trying to build a, a foundation that maybe a lot of people got in their late teens early 20s i was just doing it in my late 20s so you know get the girlfriend right that starts to come together and she had moved home because of COVID. And we had known each other for a long time, but we kind of got together in a romantic way during COVID. I would say about halfway through that, she is all excited because she had been like laid off through three times through that process of, of you know COVID, whatever, and finally gets a job offer and it's a six-figure job offer. And at this point, I feel like I'm doing really well. And then she's like, oh my God, I'm moving back to New York. I just got a six-figure job. And I'm trying to be happy for her, you know, but I'm like, oh my God, like, what is that even, what is six figures? (laughs) You know, I'm making 16 bucks an hour or something at this point. So that was super painful, you know, like the pain of a tenant calling you and saying that the toilet is overflowing and you need to come get it. I promise anybody listening is much less than falling behind, you know, like that is way more painful. So That was a catalyst though, to like, all right, dude, you got to, you've got a lot of other things going as a foundation in your life right now, exercise, morning routine, reading at night, whatever. But financial something is not, it it wasn't anything I was looking at. So I was like, okay, I'm uncomfortable. There's some growth that needs to happen.
0: Well, okay, so what happened with the girl? Did she go off to New York and now you're home and you're trying to figure it out? Did you break up? Did you stay together? Is it long distance? I mean, we would need some more
2: details. Great question. (laughs) The girl, the girl. Um, Still in a relationship with the girl. Going on like four years, basically. Three and a half, four years. She moved to the city. She took the job and I, throughout this whole time at the bike shops, I had been trying to figure out how I could be of more value to the bike shop. You know, I love the business. I wasn't thinking about getting a new job. I was thinking about how can I learn more things to help this bike shop grow? You know, if I fast forward a little bit, I started as a, a just whatever employee at the bike shop. We didn't have roles or an org chart back then, you know, and, and, you know, we read books like traction or all these books. And now we have four stores I'm the general manager of the whole business. Um, You know, grew that business added value. So basically girlfriend moves to New York city and we're like, Oh my God, how are we going to figure this out? And she had a few months from when she got the job offer to when she moved to New York. So I had a little bit of time or we had a little bit of time to figure it out. So I very quickly started watching Graham Stephan YouTube videos. Um, He's like a, financial influencer, YouTube guy or whatever. And he was talking about like buying duplexes and investing in real estate. I needed a place to live. I wasn't on grandma's couch anymore, but I was renting a house. It was just like, it was whatever, you know, I wasn't adding, wasn't paying any equity to myself. That's for sure. And pretty quickly, you know, when the pressure's on, we take some action, right? Got pre-approved, had some money saved up from getting lucky with some Tesla stock. To be honest with you, I had no clue what I was doing. Um and was like all right i'm gonna buy a duplex not a huge plan beyond that it was basically like i'm gonna buy a duplex rent out one side of it with this idea in the back of my head that like maybe i'll rent my apartment out on airbnb if the relationship works out because i'll probably be in the city quite a bit
0: so that was a big influence on your part as finding housing that would maybe suit your new lifestyle of traveling back and forth to new york you want to you know have a better strong foundation for your personal finances because this girl is going off making a hundred thousand dollars and you want to provide a better life for her and yourself. So you start to realize you want to look at duplex. So I want to get into like when that moment hit, how long did it actually take For you to actually take action and to purchase that. So start to think about that because we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, I want to dive into that momentum that propelled you from learning about duplex investing until actually taking action. And we'll be right back.
1: Rent to retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. dot com. That's renttoretirement.com. dot com. Or text REI to three three seven seven seven. Again, text REI to three three seven 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 Eligible items only.
0: Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Okay, welcome back. Jaron. here is going to tell us about that period of time where he learned about real estate investing and where he actually took action and purchased his first duplex. So Jaron, tell us about the feelings, the emotions, what you learned and kind of that roadmap you took during that period of time.
2: Okay, great question. Um, The duplex, the the first house purchase for me, which was about 3 years ago at this point a little less. I was reading a lot at that point. You know, I was reading all the bigger pockets books. I was watching the YouTube books. You know, when I get into something I can get pretty obsessed and pretty focused on it and it's really easy to do the work. I also had the pressure, girlfriend was definitely surpassing me in careers and I and I had the pressure to kind of keep up and figure it out. And so, had some money saved up, not much, like 15 grand. You know, that was my whole net worth and it was really negative because other stuff, but we'll call it 15 grand in cash. I had Googled real estate agent, found one, picked the first one. She ended up being amazing. We're friends to this day, but I just got lucky basically. Got pre-approved from a bank. It was just the only reason I picked the bank is because they had, the they were the only lender it was actually a broker that had an, a traditional like proper FHA loan. All the banks had products that were similar. But they're the only ones that had three and a half percent down. And that's pretty much what I needed.
0: And how did you how did you find that out? Were you calling loan officers? Were you Googling different banks? How did you find that out that that was the bank that had that?
2: Good question. There's a few people in my life that are a little ahead of me on this journey. And I would just be chatting with them. How'd you do it? How'd you do it? You know, local people who are in the same market.
0: Yeah, why reinvent the wheel when you have resources? You know,
2: I,
1: I just want to add to like that's a, a really important lesson for Ricky to understand is that you know it, banking is almost like a like a commodity, right? It's like any other. Product that's out there. Like, you can't go to Walmart and buy the same things you're going to buy at Target. You can't go to the 99 cent store and get the same things you're going to get at Dollar Tree. So, banks are the same way. Like, each bank has its own suite of products. And sometimes one bank might not have what you need. That doesn't mean there aren't 10 other banks that have it. So, I, I see a lot of rookies that feel a little discouraged when they talk to maybe one or two lenders and can't seem to find the right product for themselves. But there are so many loan products out there and so many different lenders and so many different institutions. Keep looking until you find the the right person that, that kind of matches your unique situation. And it sounds like that's what what you did, Jaron.
2: Yeah, a thousand percent. And if I could add a little bit there, it's like I think a topic that's discussed a lot on here, but I think sometimes f- is easily forgotten in the moment is that the bank's Make money off us as a consumer or an investor. You know they need us, so there's a lot of fear walking into the bank. I had a lot of fear of like I'm going to get eject- rejected. I'm not going to get approved for a loan. You know, but realistically, if you actually have a little bit of money saved up and your your goals or your target is realistic, the banks are going to open the door. You know, they're going to open the door for you. So. I went to one other bank actually, got approved for a loan, but the down payment they wanted was a little more than I had to spend. So I went with the FHA loan, even though I had to have mortgage insurance and stuff like that. And it was probably, to directly answer your question, it probably was about three months until I started actually writing offers. And we're in the middle of the pandemic. And so a lot of the noise you can hear is like, oh, don't buy. Real estate prices are really high.
1: Dude, we've heard that so many times, right? Like so many of our guests bought during COVID and ended up being like their best deal. And I can say for me... My best deal was a property I bought like right in the middle of COVID. Like yeah. hands down, purchase prices were lower, interest rates were super low. Like it'll be hard for me to ever match that deal again. But uh, before we keep going, Jaren, because I really want to get into the details of this duplex. Um, I don't think you've mentioned what city you're in yet. What what city are you buying this duplex in? What city are you shopping in?
2: So the the first duplex was purchased in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. It's my hometown. It's where I was born. Um, I moved away for a long time, but I know the market. I understand the market at least for that type of purchase. I understand the market enough. You know, I knew the neighborhoods. I knew where the multifamily houses were. I knew where the multifamily neighborhoods that I maybe didn't want to go into. And I knew where the multifamily neighborhoods where I would be okay living and investing in were. And so, you know, it's not a big city, 60,000 people kind of post industry type area. It's that part of the Berkshires. And the, when I say the Berkshires, it's like the Western part of the state is pretty rural, but Pittsfield particular is like a small metropolitan area. In a nutshell, the Berkshires are a beautiful place to live. And what feels like is happening is that more and more people are moving here daily, you know, especially the southern part of the Berkshires. The southern Berkshires, because it's a little bit more affluential, you know, high end area is a great short term rental market. A lot of people are coming here on vacation and they're coming here on vacation. It used to be summertime, but that seems to be more of a nine month calendar from that. You know the other part of Pittsfield, which I'm interested in, or the Berkshires that I'm interested, in, is Pittsfield is pretty open for the taking right now. There's a lot of old multifamily between two and four units that have been, you know, old houses that have been renovated, chopped up into four units, that kind of thing. Fifty to seventy-five thousand a unit you can get into pretty affordably, and the rent the rents are strong. You know, twelve hundred to fifteen hundred depending on the bedroom. So if you do some back of the napkin math there, like the, the market checks out not only for cash flow and you know, if you want to bet like me, I'm hoping twenty years down the road that it's a it's a pretty nice place to live, and people have moved here, and we, we see that appreciation that we hope in the in the markets that we're investing in. Yeah,
1: so I just had to look up Pittsfield on the map. Um, you know, the daily segment of the the rookie podcast where Tony gets his geography lesson, and <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like right on the the border of New York State. It looks like so far far west Massachusetts. Now, let me ask this question, right? Like. Uh, and I tell this to a lot of new people that, that are looking for cities, and they're asking that question of what city should I invest in? I always say there, there's really two types of data you have to look at. You have to look at the qualitative information, the qualitative data, and you have to look at the quantitative information. Since you grew up in this city, you had all of the qualitative information. You kind of knew where things were. You knew where the better parts of town were. You had a general sense of, you know, is this a good city to to invest in? But did you take it a step further, Jaron? Did you identify any of that that quantitative those hard numbers that still kind of validated your decision to invest in that city?
2: Short answer is no. But yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a gut and a lot of it was based off that for this. It's like, all right, we're okay as a city. You know, I live here. I know plenty of people that live here. Things aren't really going up or down, fairly stable. And to me, the benefits of having like a network in the area, you know, whether it's a friend who can hold a ladder for you or a friend who's worked with a local real estate agent, that to me for a small duplex purchase was way more important than like, what are the bigger ag- economic trends in the area?
0: For your first deal, you can't know everything anyways. So there has to be that little bit of gut check. like, okay, I, I don't know everything. It's my first deal. Like I have to take action too. So.
2: I mean, analysis paralysis, right? Like I needed to buy a house and really I needed a living situation. You know, all the other stuff was kind of ancillary. So it's like if I started to think about population growth and what new businesses are coming to the area, and I think a lot of people do this. Th- there's going to be something in that web of data that's going to tell you this is a bad idea. So I'm just like, I'm just going to do it and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I think there's a benefit, too, that you're looking for something to house hack, right? Something that you could live in and, you know, rent out the other side because
2: it, it just o- almost
1: automatically forced you to to circle in on a certain area. So you you, you land on your, your backyard, your, your hometown is a city you want to invest into. Um, how long does it actually take for you to find that first duplex?
2: I would say three months to kind of get my stuff in order to write offers, I would say 60 days or less to actually have an accepted offer. I probably wrote five to seven offers in that time, you know, my my criteria wasn't anything that crazy. It was like $200,000 or less two family, couple different neighborhoods. And, and beyond that, I was writing offers on anything that fit that bill, I, I didn't know enough to be picky, you know.
0: So tell us a little bit about that deal. What was the asking price and what did you end up getting it under contract for?
2: I think asking price was 179. I think I wrote an offer for 179. I had gone around the the merry-go-round a few times of like, you know, last and final on some other houses and missed out and basically the conversation with my real estate agent moving forward was like, if we're going to write offers, let's just write our last and final offer every time. There was no writing an offer and then like writing an offer under market value. It was different times than today. It was like, this is what they're asking for. I can make the numbers work enough at that price. I need a house. That's and that's how we did it. So it was like, yeah, five or seven offers. Got it under contract at asking price when they asked for less and final. I didn't change my number. They accepted it. Under contract, learned that I was going to need to have flood insurance.
0: So that had to change your numbers a lot. Yes. Having to figure out flood insurance. What did that end up costing you a year?
2: Well, when you're stubborn and desperate and need to make something happen, sometimes as things fly in, in your windshield, you just kind of put the windshield wipers on and keep moving forward. <laughs> uh, everything was getting scarier and scarier as we were going through it, but... It ended up costing me $2,300 for the first year, which is crazy. Yeah. But I knew I needed to just make something happen or I'd be, I wouldn't be here right now, right? Like I knew I could afford it. I maybe wasn't going to make any money, but I knew I could afford it. So I was like, whatever, screw it. Now, after the first year, you know, there's like a little bit of stabilization, stabilization, all these things happening or whatever. Not that there's much stabilization in the two family, but it felt like it at the time. I'm paying like a uh, 1050. So 1050 bucks a year moving forward for flood insurance, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the cost of doing business at this point. It's not a big deal.
0: Tony, you had to, a really bad experience with flood insurance, right, in Louisiana.
1: I was I was trying to avoid, yeah, reliving that terrible, terrible experience. But yeah, our, our very second single-family home, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but ours, like, I, I want to see our flood insurance premium like tripled from one year to the next and we shopped around to different providers we, we we talked to different insurance brokers and for whatever reason we couldn't get it down and we end up having to sell that property. We end up selling it at a loss because you either, either way we're going to be losing money on it. So, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, you know, my, my lesson is just like, I pretty much just don't buy anywhere that's in a flood zone anymore. Um, you know, just cause I don't, I don't want to run that risk, but you know, if it's a stabilized you know, and you can kind of project what it's going to be, maybe, maybe it makes sense too.
0: And that's happening in like Texas and Florida right now too, for mm-hmm. like hurricane insurance and also flood insurance right. and different things like that, where, insurance is just changing so drastically. So like in Houston, for example, there's like large multifamily apartment complexes that are having a hard time getting insurance, or it's going to be super, super expensive. And it's like when they purchased the deal two, three years ago, you know, the numbers worked. But then when your insurance just skyrockets like that, it's an expense you don't account for. And now you have to figure out as the operator or the owner of these properties, as to how to make that deal work, especially when you have investors involved too. Yeah. So that's always something to be cautious of. You know, you have your property taxes increasing and your insurance and property taxes, you're most likely always going to have unless you turn your uh, property into a church or something like that. But if you, for your insurance, you don't always have to have insurance. I've bought a couple of properties where the guy tells me, oh, I'm self-insured. I don't have insurance on this place. So- yeah, I mean, technically, you don't have to have insurance on the property if you don't have a mortgage on the property. But pretty much every single bank is going to require you to have insurance on the property. So those are two things that you really want to understand and know what your increases could be to kind of building out your numbers going forward, too. So, Jaren, when you were analyzing this duplex, did you account for your income for a long-term rental and a short-term rental, or did you just do it as one? What did your um, income kind of look like that you were accounting for when you analyzed this deal?
2: I the short-term rental thing was an idea. You know, it's it's not the it's not what you would consider to be a traditional short-term rental neighborhood. You know, it was more like okay, the house is going to cost cost me roughly this much, the rent from downstairs is going to be roughly this much. Here's my income. Can I make it all work? And I was like, yeah, I can just barely make this work. We'll see what happens. And then from there it, it snowballs. It's like, all right, I'm going to fix the apartment up. And while you're fixing the apartment up, because I was in the situation I was in, I'm like, how can I make a little bit more money off this apartment? I don't need a lot in life. You know, I don't need a huge house to live in for my three kids. It's in the Berkshires, at least at that point, it was just me. You know, I was going to New York City to be with my girlfriend on the weekends. So short-term rental revenue during the pandemic was a, a pleasant surprise, let me tell you. So, Jaren,
1: I, I want to get into those numbers here in a second because obviously I'm, I'm a big short-term rental guy, and I, I love it when I hear smaller cities like this that maybe you wouldn't even think would be big for short-term rentals tend to do relatively well. But before we do, we want to take a short break to hear from our show sponsors. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. bookstore. So sign up for a one dollar per month trial at shopify.com slash bp rookie all lowercase. Again go to shopify.com slash bp rookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash bp rookie so Jaron we're back and I want to dive into the revenue from your Airbnb. But before we do Ash I just gotta say uh before we broke you said that churches don't have to say property taxes. I did not know that. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure,
0: right? Did you Google
3: it? I did. Go I Googled, it.
1: I, I Googled okay. it. I Googled it. And you're absolutely right. Churches are exempt, at least in California from paying, paying property taxes. Yeah, so yeah. now I'm thinking like, okay, how can I turn all of my Airbnbs in the churches part No, and then you just um, do what the
0: Kardashians <laughs> do. You have all of your friends donate to the church, but then you do like church retreats to Puerto Rico or Hawaii or whatever and like <laughs> All their money is a donation, but then they can send it over they want. I don't know. So you can do? Google at Kardashian Church and how they funnel their investing through a church.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy idea. All right. Well, enough about uh skirting the tax laws by creating these churches. Well, let's talk about the, the revenue from your, your short term rentals, in So I, I just want to paint the picture here. So you have a duplex, and are you renting out one like one entire side is short term rental? Are you renting out rooms? What was your exact strategy for the Airbnb side?
2: Well, so you, you, you mentioned the the market. So basically the Berkshires are a slice of Western Massachusetts, like way Western Massachusetts. And it's a pretty, there's a lot of different things happening here. Pittsfield, working class city. Um, Southern Berkshires is where a lot of people come up to go on vacation from New York city, Boston, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a pretty high end. It's like the Hamptons basically. It's very bougie. And so when I said, I'm going to, you know, house hack my duplex and put my apartment on Airbnb, people did not think of my apartment in a C plus B minus class neighborhood as somewhere where you could have an Airbnb. And I believed them, but I believed you guys a lot more. It was like, there's a (laughs) lot of different shapes and sizes, you know, uh, that these things can operate in. So I was like, I'm just going to go for it renovated the apartment myself. I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm trying to never pick up a hammer again. I'm doing pretty well at that, but not perfectly.
0: So were you living in it while you were renovating it or did you wait to move in?
2: I was working probably 50 hours a week, trying to ride my bike three times a week. I was in the Berkshires from Monday morning at eight o'clock until Thursday afternoon at, Six PM and then I was driving to New York City to be with my girlfriend Thursday night through five thirty in the morning on Monday. So
0: nobody else has an excuse to not get started in real estate investing. There was no
2: time, but it worked.
0: Yeah. If you want it bad enough, you'll make time for it.
2: Yes, and I feel bad for the people who the tenants I inherited downstairs because I was sanding the walls from eight o'clock at night till one o'clock in the morning and they were patient. And yeah, a little bit less sleep, not a big deal. You know, we will survive.
0: So you, you get it done. Yeah, you post it up on Airbnb and how does it go?
2: I post it on Airbnb. I kinda thought I had it ready. Here comes grandma again. I go on vacation to Cape Cod actually. I post it on Airbnb, but I don't turn it on yet. I just kind of get it listed. And I I have no clue how to build an Airbnb listing at this point. I built dozens of them now. I know how to do it. But back then, it's the first one you're like poking your way through. I'm in Cape Cod and I'm talking to my girlfriend. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to turn it on. Now, mind you, it's summertime in the Berkshires. That's when everyone wants to be here. I turn it on and I get like 10 bookings in 24 hours.
0: Oh my God.
2: The first one is like the next day. And so I call my grandma and I'm like, grandma, the craziest thing happened. I did this short-term rental thing that I've been talking to you about. You know, is there any way, my grandma and I obviously have a great relationship. You know, I talk to her all the time. Is there any way you can pop over to my house to just make sure it looks good and is ready to go? She calls me back the next morning, maybe not swearing, but, oh my God, I can't believe you thought that was going to be ready to rent like that. Like things I know now that I didn't know, which is like. The tub has to be like clean, not, not like work at the bike shop, boy, clean, like clean. And so she, thank God for grandma and for a million different reasons, kind of tuned it up real quick. First person checks in and you know, the rest is history from there basically, but it worked out.
1: Can we, can we talk numbers here? Because I'm I'm curious, man, you, you've got this, you know, smaller city, not a, not a major vacation destination, but something that's, that's good for that kind of regional area. In that first year that you had it, ballpark, what did what did the numbers look like?
2: Yeah, so this is where it was, for me, it was so life-changing because I was making so little money. You know, like I, I had a tenant or to use Brian Murray's word, resident, which I like to try and start using that lingo, <laughs> downstairs paying $1,000 a month in a long-term lease. I put it on Airbnb and I was trending to do maybe like, $15,000 in the year, but then again, bigger pockets, forum, book, something. I learn about dynamic pricing. I load the listing onto Price Labs and I learn that I don't have to charge $87 a night for this short term rental. I can charge $349 a night. I never would have known, you know? Oh. And so there's a lot of stories in there of like accidentally charging too much you know, like just cause I could, you know, getting greedy cause the sake you can get away with it. And that caused some problems, which I fixed with some integrity. I would, I would hope and, um, landed on a price that pricing strategy for that property that worked out really well. And I think year one of being on Airbnb, I did like, let's call it 30, 36,000. It was more than three times what I was getting from the downstairs, um, resident, and I was living in the house four days a week,
0: wow, yeah. so break down like what was your you know cash flow for the year or average on monthly were you having to pay anything towards your mortgage at all, or was it completely covered in your walking away with cash every month?
2: Great question, so cash flow is always a little bit of an interesting, tricky word for me i I think a lot of people, not necessarily on here, but just in general, talk about cash flow of like whatever they're making, but maybe not setting aside money for reserves or this, that, and the other thing. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be more careful about that. Basically, I brought in like $50,000 in revenue in that first year. And if I look at the bills on the things that I didn't have to pay, you know, the bills were somewhere around mortgages 1400 I have a whole panel for this but let's call it 25 grand so there was 25000 or so available that I was able to hypothetically put in my pocket but really me as a landlord and where I want to go with this and because I'm lucky enough to have a day job is that I really want to keep all the money in the properties you know yeah. whether it's re- reinvesting it reinvesting them to make the property nicer or leaving it in a bank account tied to the property to then use as a down payment for another property down the road. Like I don't need the cash flow anymore, you know, in the beginning, maybe, but now as long as the property is completely like completely supporting itself, I'm okay. And I'd rather push the money in to try and drive the value on an appraisal down the road because I want, I want the big chunk of money. I want the 200 grand from a a new appraisal. I don't care as much about the $200 a door a month or whatever that number is.
1: So Jaron, just to... give some clarity to the listeners here. Um, you have a duplex, you're renting out one unit long-term. And then when you go back to the city to to see your girlfriend, you're renting out the unit you live in short-term. So on a part-time basis, between the short-term rental and then the long-term rental downstairs, you did over $50,000 in revenue. And I just want to make sure I'm tracking correctly.
2: Yeah, and that's, you know, this, the asterisk to that is that that was learning how to do Airbnb, during a pandemic when demand was very strong. Now I would say at this point, I'm fairly, I would say very confident with my abilities on Airbnb or short term rental platforms. And I think this year I'm going to do exactly like 31 or Mm 32,000 from the Airbnb. So my, the rent downstairs is a little higher, like 45 grand gross in that house, but that's, being further along with learning how things work.
1: And uh, on that note, Jaren, you mentioned that you you learned some lessons um, as you were you know, pricing and other things. What were some of those lessons you learned that you feel have helped you become a better host today?
2: You know, I'm juggling a lot of things, right? We have four bike shops. I got a relationship in New York City. I got a bike I want to ride. I want a community I want to be a part of. What I don't necessarily think is a great use of my time is cleaning the sheets and cleaning the apartment. So Mm -hmm. first thing I did is I, you know, I started dropping the laundry off at a linen company. They charge me a dollar and a quarter a pound. It comes back way better than if I do it myself. That was number one that bought me back a little time. And that's when I was like, I'm going to start a Airbnb management business, you know, and start Googling how that works. And then it's like, I need a cleaner, got a cleaner. All of a sudden I've bought back six hours a week of my time or five hours a week of my time. And I'm putting that time. I'm not Watching TV, I'm googling how to start an Airbnb management business. You know, like that's kind of been the evolution there.
1: Yeah, there's a, a great book I read recently. It's called uh, Buy Back Your Time" by Dan Martell, and basically what you just described, Jaron, is the the premise of that book. Is that at your as you're building your own business, you want to identify opportunities for you to hire someone who can take away some of those tasks that you're doing that aren't the highest and best use of your time. So you can continue to focus on growing the business at a higher level. And it sounds like that's what you did, man. So let's talk a little bit about the transition to the the management
2: side of things.
1: Um, i guess how many how many properties are you currently managing
2: it changes a little bit because sometimes people are like i want to live in the house i don't but about 10 basically
1: that's awesome man. and and what period of time how long did it take you to go from zero to ten properties under management
2: that's a great question i would say 12 months give or take and then eight to ten felt like enough for where i was at as far as like availability to put into that business you know like the reason i went down that road versus trying to be a contractor or a real estate agent or something is because of my living situation, I needed to do something that I could pretty much fully operate from my phone, you know, because I'm in different places all the time. So running short-term rentals for other people felt like the best fit. Now today I have a handyman, I have two cleaners, you know, I, there's people that make money in this business besides myself, plus all the homeowners, but, um, that was the best fit for me. You know, if I wanted to go deeper into real estate, that was the best fit. You know, where I want to go with that business this year is I haven't put a lot of extra effort in like systemizing or growing that business that much over the last 12 months. So that's this year coming is really hopefully going to be a time to kind of focus on putting some more time and effort into that business.
0: Jaren, do you think for another rookie investor, that's a great almost side hustle for them to get into to kind of help them build their investment portfolio? And maybe you could give us some insight as to how lucrative this actually is for you. Is there money in it? Are you doing it for the experience?
2: So any type of property management that you can get your hands on, whether it's long-term, short-term, medium-term cleaning houses, is a great way for someone who's wants to learn and isn't afraid of some hard work to get into. You're in the properties, you're you're dealing with people who are either staying or living in these properties. You're learning what to do when the, you know, everyone's biggest fear, when the toilet starts to leak. And the other thing is that the barrier to entry is really low, both, well, especially financially, you know, like you don't need a hundred grand to go start a small mom and pop property management business.
1: What was your process for finding those 10 clients? Uh, Were were you networking at real estate meetups? Were you sending out direct mail? How did you find those 10 clients?
2: How I did it in the beginning was through some luck. And it's been a question that I would like love to ask some people of a better way to do it. Here's how I did it. I made some flyers that cost me $100 to get printed. I paid someone $100 to go, you know, where there's like a flyer delivery service in the community. And she dropped them off at 100 different locations. That was part one.
1: And then did you, Jaren, did you actually drop them off at the Airbnb or were you dropping them off at the, like, owner's residences. Or like different businesses. Bingo.
2: So general stores, coffee shops, liquor stores, whatever stores are in the area, you know, that had like a community bulletin board, we would post them there and got a few listings from that. I also started pulling a list of like six months of real estate transactions, like, you know, in the Berkshires. And then I would... Organized that list so it was like only houses that were $250,000 or more. And then I would delete a few cities in the Berkshires out of that based on what I like. And I would just send them a direct mail, which was a piece of mail that basically linked them back to my website. That worked a little bit. There is probably a million ways to create a much higher conversion rate that I am going to put some time and effort into this coming year. But that got me to 10
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. I so we're we're really focused. Twenty twenty four is going to be the year that we really focus on growing our Airbnb management company as well. And you know, obviously, we're we're going to leverage the platform that we've already built. But uh, I think a big focus for us is going to be relationships. So talking to our agents, our lenders that we already know, uh, and saying like, "Hey, if you have more clients, send them our way." Uh, Direct mail, I think, is going to be a big piece for us also. Um, And then. Uh, a sneaky trick that i learned from one of my friends that has a management company in in arizona but um we have a cleaning company and he said that his kind of back door into management was getting cleaning clients first because everyone wants a good cleaner right it's the there's less friction in changing cleaning companies than there is changing property management companies so if we can prove that we're really good at the cleaning process we've already built that connection that relationship with the owner then we can approach them later and say, hey, look, we've been cleaning for you for three months, but you know, we also do management. So um, I'm, I'm super excited about growing both of those businesses because I feel like there's a there's a big need for that in this space. So
2: the cleaning business thing is something that I've put some thought into of like, let's put it this way. If I wasn't running a few bike shops right now, I would be fully not even working on the business, but working in the business, Airbnb cleaning company. And would be whispering into people's ears of, oh yeah, by the way, we run these listings as well. Because of my job, mm-hmm. I don't have as much time to do that. But that is part of the plan for this coming year of how to how to grow that business a little bit.
0: And then in five years, you sell it to an even bigger management company and you retire.
2: There's, I have five-year plans. That isn't exactly it, but <laughs> it is a good one.
0: Well, go ahead. Tell us yours real quick, if you don't mind.
2: Well... The, the whole thing for the management business for me right now is to try to keep it pretty passive. You know, my focus is on the bike shops and taking the money from the management business and to buy bigger multifamily buildings. We haven't talked about the bigger purchase I made this past year, which is totally fine. But basically I bought an eight unit apartment building and I really like that size multifamily and it's around, it's available in the area. So let's say eight to 10 unit apartment building, million bucks, you need to pull the trigger on that kind of thing. I want the money from the management company to be used for down payments for those types of purchases. The other part of the five-year plan is that, you know, I'm very much a part of these bike shops and retail is in an interesting point right now where we need to pivot a little bit. Margins are getting squeezed in different ways and we need to think outside the box of how to bring in revenue to retail businesses so you know one of my plans is like i know how to run airbnbs like why don't we have an outdoor themed hotel motel lodge this that and the other thing as part of our like bike shop ecosystem you know what i mean like kind of bring it all together i'd love to see that at some point in the future i mean there's a million directions to go but that that's part of it probably
0: quite the visionary i have to say
2: Because I put a lot of work into trying to do it, like all of you. you It's the same thing.
0: Oh, one thing you had mentioned in there, though, is an eight-unit building. When did you get that?
2: Oh, man, I got that. Depends how much of that can of worms you want to open up. Um, (laughs) But, yeah,
0: let's just go into it brief before we uh, wrap up.
2: That I closed on on April 1st. Um, I had been under contract since the end of October. I'll I'll tell you how I got there a little bit, which is that I refinanced the duplex and I had some cash from that because I wasn't afraid to buy a property during the pandemic, even though everybody told me not to because it had appreciated, right? Like we've all experienced. And I pulled some equity out of that. It was burning a hole in my pocket. I was making payments on it. And I was like, I got to buy something. I got to put this somewhere so I don't use it to buy like a car or something stupid. So I made a list of all the multi-family homes in the neighborhood that I already was living in and I started calling and I hear stories about a lot of people who call thousands of people my fourth phone call though a woman answered the phone and I said hey my name is Jaren I live in the neighborhood and I'm trying to buy another property in the neighborhood are you interested in selling your house and she goes funny we actually have it listed for sale I had made the list like two months prior and then was really busy with a few things and started calling.
0: Oh, so you didn't see it. I yeah. didn't
2: see it. And I said, okay, my apologies. If you don't mind me asking, what do you have listed? And she's like, we have an eight-unit apartment building listed for 550000 I think. And I said, okay, you know, that's amazing. Good for you. You know, like in a real way, I was like, congratulations, <laughs> whatever. I was like, it's a bit outside of my buy box. I'm looking for like a two to four unit. And then somewhere way back in here, a voice said, ask him about seller financing. And I asked and I said, would you ever consider seller financing? And she paused for about 10 seconds. And she said, you know, we bought it with seller financing 40 years ago. We'd be open to it. And I pretty much fainted. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cause we hear this stuff and it doesn't feel like it's a real thing. It's a real yeah. thing.
0: I still get excited about it, Jaren. Just literally yesterday, I got a text from Daryl saying, uh, the neighbor wants to sell his property and want to know if we were interested. And before I could work up my list of 20 questions, he (laughs) said... He will. He's interested in doing seller financing. It's crazy, and you know. And I still got excited. I was like, okay, there's a big step there. Like this may, could make this a, a better deal, just for the fact that he's open to doing seller financing.
2: It's a win-win for both sides if the situations are right, which is which is why it works. You know, like this this ended up being perfect for both of us. And
1: just one thing I'll mention too is that uh, I think there's a a stronger appetite from owners to offer seller financing on these bigger commercial properties or, you know, small multifamily, even like we, we have a hotel under contract that we'll be closing on hopefully next couple of weeks here. And it's a 13 unit motel, uh, fully seller financed. And we got, uh, I think a 10 year term first two years are interest only. It was like a six and a half percent interest rate. Um, and we got it below what it appraised for just a, a killer deal, like all the way around. And it's it's because these uh, commercial property owners they know that if their books aren't super solid if if their you know their P and Ls aren't good if they don't have good tax returns it's going to be difficult for someone to go out there and get traditional debt on that property anyway so there's a little bit more flexibility from those folks as opposed to going to like a you know single family home owner who lived in this property their, themselves for thirty years and doesn't know anything about seller financing
2: it's a different world right once you get up into five plus hotels. At least what I've experienced, the the transaction is is a completely different world.
1: So, Jaron, let's talk numbers on this eight unit. Walk us through, yeah. Give me give me the rundown of, of what the numbers were on this one.
2: Can I? I want to add one thing that I did that I think got me the deal and is a is a tip for everyone out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Please, yeah share please,
2: with us. So, conversation with the woman. She basically was like, "My husband deals with the real estate. I'll have him call you." He calls me back fifteen minutes later. He says, "What are you doing?" I said looking to buy a house. He said, I'll meet you there in 15 minutes. At this point, I'm along for the ride. You know, he shows up. He tours me through every single nook and cranny of this house. You know, this was something that this owner was really proud of. This is where I might cry. Really proud of. And it was an amazing experience for someone like myself, where going through an eight unit building, being like, this guy is showing me everything. It was an education. I learned so much in two hours, maybe three hours we were there. And at the end of the conversation, it was kind of clear that like I liked him and he liked me. You know that part was super important. From there, we kind of looked at each other, and we were, we were both kind of like, "What do we do?" And I, <laughs> we were. He was like, "You know what? I have it listed. I owe the broker the sale at least for now. If you want are interested in the purchasing this, write up an offer and put it submit it through the broker." I say, "Okay." Tony, to your point, I underwrote it a million ways to Sunday. Uh, this is where I have a lot of respect for Brian Murray. I bought the Multifamily Millionaire. I read it in three days. I learned how to underwrite bigger multifamily. Um, and no matter how hard I squinted at it, I couldn't make it work. And I knew if like, the management company started doing poorly or I got laid off from my job, let's say, God forbid, or the Airbnb and the duplex did bad, I was going to potentially be in trouble, you know, like I was, I was going to have to carry it too much for too long. So here's the tip. I wrote the guy an, a super honest, him and his wife, a super honest letter telling them about banks won't underwrite it because the rent doesn't cover the debt service, you know, this, that, and the other thing. If I hope we meet again, this, that, and the other thing. But currently, as listed, I don't feel comfortable writing you an offer. I don't want to lowball him. You know, I had started this relationship with this guy. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote him a letter, and it was, a, it was an honest letter, you know. In the back of my mind, I'm like, maybe they'll call me someday. But I didn't think it was going to happen as quickly as it did. He called me back three weeks later and was like, Jaron, I want to sell you the house. They had it listed for five fifty. dollars I want to sell it to you for $400,000. We'll sell our finance the whole thing for you if you can come up with $15,000 down. At 5% amortized wow. over 20 years with a five year wow. balloon. And I, and he was like, he was kind of carrying me through this deal, right? He said, I want you to think about it for 24 hours. And if you want it, I'm almost crying. If you want it, call me in 24 hours and we got a deal. So I fainted again, thought about it for 24 hours. I <laughs> woke up the next morning, you know moved a little bit of money around, if you will, made sure I was good. And I called him back and got under contract. Um, and I own it today. That is amazing.
0: It doesn't this, uh, all three of us, doesn't that make you feel the emotion of like, I can't wait until that's me one day. And I get this new investor that I get to like, give this great deal to and walk them through yeah. and like, Hand my baby down to somebody
2: else. (laughs) To that point, you know, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I think, we'll we all get to a purchase like this, you know, at some point. But I think at the same time, real estate investors, like we have a lot of responsibility, you know, and like, there's no question that I got to hand this thing down to somebody else someday, you know? Yeah. -hmm. When? I don't know, Mm -hmm. but like have to,
1: you know? I just want to add one thing because I, I know this is something that I always wondered as I was getting into real estate investing, but it's like, why would anyone seller finance? And one of the things that we have to remember is that, um, hey, there, there's, you know, some tax implications of selling big properties all at once that they might want to avoid. And if they don't want to 1031 into something else, like that's, that's something to consider. But also think like when they own the property, they're responsible for like all the day to day, right? Even if you have the property manager, they shall have to manage a property manager and make improvements to the property. Like there's a there's work that goes into being responsible for that property on a daily basis. If they sell or finance, there is an opportunity. They could get even more cash flow from this new note that they're giving to you with literally zero work. <laughs> so it, it really is a win-win situation for you as a buyer because you're getting an amazing deal. You get to come in, do all the things you need to do to improve the value of that property. They're getting a killer deal because there's no big tax bill. And then they get that, that stable, reliable cash flow every single month. So it, it really is a win-win situation.
2: Yeah. The the other thing that I'll add is that they wanted a certain number for this building, right? They wanted half a million dollars for this building. And, you know, if you start to look at principal and interest amortization schedule over five years, you know, if I wait five years and refinance it on the last month that that note is due to them, they're going to end up getting pretty close to their full asking price. They just have to get it over time. So they win too, you know, they get what they want at the end of the day.
0: So Jaren, to kind of bring this full circle, what is your profit every month from this property, the eight unit?
2: So this one is is for me is, is a bit crazier. I'll say that when I purchased it, part of the reason why no one else had bought it and why they're having a hard time selling it and why the bank wouldn't finance it is it was bringing in $3,400 a month eight apartments. Now market rate realistically in the area is about a thousand dollars an apartment, depending on, you know, the apartment bedrooms, et cetera. But let's use that as a, as a ground rule, you know, a baseline number. It was six months of stabilization. That was really uncomfortable in a million different ways, starting with, you know, closing, getting the keys and having to knock on eight doors of people who've lived there for a long time and say, Hey, my name's Jaron. I'm the new landlord. You know, Oh, and by the way, like your rent's going to go up a little bit probably, you know. There was a thousand sleepless nights of plan of how I was going to reduce or increase the revenue of the property and and I probably didn't know the exact strategy until 2 minutes before I knocked on the first door. You know, I thought about it a lot but I didn't have it locked down. I was under contract for 6 months, which is why I had so much time to think about it, but it worked perfectly.
1: And just to set the table here, you're saying 30 30- you know, over just over 3000 bucks, but it was like 425 in rent per unit when market rents were a thousand. It's a massive difference. So uh, I guess, what was your, what was your process, for taking those rents from 425 and getting them closer to that 1000? And and what number did you eventually land on?
2: Very low. And it was very scary. You know, I I knew the house I had worked out was going to cost me about $5,000 a month. And that's right about where it's at. You know, if I really I'm socking money into reserves and I'm and I'm under, you know, banking conservatively, that house should hold on to $5,000 a month. And that's right about where it's been after some renovations is where it's kind of stabilized out to. And I was bringing in $3,400 a month. So knock on every single door. Hi, my name's Sharon. I'm the new landlord. Here's the plan. You know, no one was on leases. What's a lease pretty much, right? This is, we deal with when we buy buildings that we can get, under market value. You know, there's some problems you got to fix. So basically the deal was I'm going to have you sign a lease. It's going to be a month to month lease. It's going to be for two months, two months from now, I'm going to raise your rent $50. I didn't want to kill people. I did the math and I realized that like 50 bucks over seven units, cause one was vacant. I would bring the rent up what? $350, $400 a month. I thought maybe I'll get lucky somewhere and I'll put an Airbnb into the one vacant unit and it'll probably do 1500 to 2000. And that will, that will buy me some time to turn some units over when people choose to leave. You know, I didn't want to kick people out. I didn't want to go crazy with the rent. I wanted to kind of try to meet people where they're at. So if there's seven tenants in a building that are way under market value and the new landlord comes in and he seems like he has his together and he's asking about, you know, he's talking about leases and he's talking about taking photos inside of the apartments to get a baseline of what the condition of the unit is and, and all this stuff, the people who aren't gonna be great residents of the building, they leave. They realize that they might be accountable for some things and they decide that this maybe isn't a perfect place to live. Pretty much what happened is out of the seven tenants, four were completely understanding and incredibly grateful of the situation. You know, they they were able to afford the payments. I have them all on one-year leases right now. Two people left, Uh, they left the apartments both of them left them in really good condition one of them i swept it was generating 450 a month i swept it i took photos i rented it out 3 days later for 1250 a month wow. um another one it was the one resident who was kind of giving me a hard time and i and i didn't raise my voice or get mad but i stayed on him hey i really need that lease hey i really need this done hey i really need this done he left And he left on good terms. Like if I saw him today, I wouldn't walk to the other side of the street. I'd say hi to him. And I feel good about that. I renovated that whole unit cost about $10,000. That's rented for a thousand dollars a month. So that plus like two other little things, like one was a, a section eight thing. That was way, the the paperwork was really off on it. That got to get raised a bit. And then I put the one apartment on Airbnb, which has done 2000 a month, basically for the last five months. All told, full circle, uh, if I look at my rental right now, with the Airbnb income, it's like $8,500 a month and it costs me right around $5,000. Wow. The the last thing I'll add is that the $3,000 a month makes me feel good. You know, it's some financial cushion, but I owe $300,000 on that property, give or take right now. I haven't got the appraisal done yet and I'm going to wait because I want to pull money out, right? That's I want the $300,000. I don't care about three grand think it's probably worth between 650 and 750 right now so it's like there's so much money tied in there for when i'm when it's time to do the next play i've already got it you know and that is why i'm really focused on the bigger multifamily at this point and i don't really and i could go buy a duplex right now but it doesn't make sense you know it makes sense to just be patient stabilize a little bit and, and try to buy another big one in a year or so
0: I think that's such a valid point as too many people get caught up in the growth scale. like I got to a point where I was so overwhelmed with buying duplexes mm-hmm. that I sold one that I only owned for a year because I had taken on too much at once and I wasn't stabilizing. I was exhausted trying, from yeah. trying to manage all these properties and acquire more as rapidly as fast as I could. And um, so I think that's a great point is you can actually end up being more successful not being in that constant growth scaling. I gotta buy something, I gotta buy something and focus on stabilization. Yeah. Um, I talk about this a couple of times, but we had a guest on who talks about how for her short term rentals, they're just adding saunas, they're adding hot tubs. Like they're not buying new properties. They're stabilizing and increasing the value of what they already have. Yeah. Jaren, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You definitely have come a long way from grandma's couch. Uh, You took that first uh, down payment, that $7,000 for a three and a half percent loan to buy your first house. And you have come all the way to having $300,000 in equity for an eight unit property and all just kind of ties back to taking action on that first property. So congratulations. If you listening want to learn more about Jaron, we are going to uh, put more information about him in the show description. You can find that on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to join us in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. Get prepared to be successful in 2024. This is going to be a four-day summit that is exclusive for pro members with some access for free members. So Make sure you upgrade to that pro membership before January 29th. Visit biggerpockets.com slash virtual summit to get all the details on Dave Meyer and the real estate experts on how to access this exclusive event and to register. Jaron, thank you so much. I'm Ashley and he's Tony, and we'll see you guys on the next Real Estate Rookie Podcast.